Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 11th, 2022, almost the weekend, and everyone knows what you do at the weekend. You go to the movies. Um, and my favorite movies, as longtime viewers of this show know, are Hitchcock movies. The great man, there he is, if you're watching. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the authority on all things, uh, Hitchcock's four greatest films are Rear Window, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and Psycho. I actually think they're wrong, but who knows who writes uh, uh, Wikipedia. Certainly, there may be some truth in that. I would agree about perhaps Rear Window and certainly Vertigo. Of course, both films feature the great James Stewart in the dominant male roles. Jimmy Stewart was one of Hitch's men, one of the two main men, I guess, who dominated the career of the great filmmaker. Much is made of Hitch's women, but maybe his men are in some ways more interesting uh, the other film included in that uh, Wikipedia foursome was North by Northwest, which is certainly one of his greatest, if not with uh, Vertigo, uh, his, his two greatest movies. And that, of course, features uh, another great Hollywood writer, uh, not writer, that was a Freudian era, uh, actor, Cary Grant, uh, another of Hitch's men, otherwise known as Archibald Alec. Leach. Uh, Cary Grant was not born as Cary Grant. And um, we have a new book about Cary Grant, only it's not nonfiction, it's fictional. It's a novel about Cary Grant's life, focusing on uh, 1959, the year that uh, North by Northwest came out. It's by my guest, Edward J. Delaney, who is joining us from Bristol, Rhode Island. Ted, congratulations on the book. It's just out. Are you another fan like myself of Hitch's Men? Absolutely. Love them all. Great movies. Why didn't you write a novel about Jimmy Stewart? Why, why, why choose um, poor old Cary Grant? Why pick on him? I think the reason that I chose Cary Grant was because it goes toward a theme that is through all the books I've done, which is the way that we create to some degree our persona. And I think that Jimmy Stewart was Jimmy Stewart. He was who he was. And Cary Grant was essentially a self-created persona uh, that was uh, both deliberately done to be sure, but also uh, something that evolved through a lot of the way his life evolved. And so to me, he was a far more interesting person to write about and, and as with fiction to speculate about. Yeah, it's interesting the way you put it. And I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this conversation. From Hitchcock's point of view, do you think it's harder to leverage a Jimmy Stewart than a, a Cary Grant? I mean, as you say, I don't know enough about Jimmy Stewart. I'm sure he was a more complicated man than he, he appears on screen, although perhaps not as complicated as um, as Cary Grant. Do you think it's harder to present someone as authentic, uh, a Jimmy Stewart, than someone who clearly isn't who he seems to be like Cary Grant? I'd say yes. I mean, it seems to me that 
you know, anybody, including Jimmy Stewart, who seeks out the acting trade, you know, wants to create personas, wants to occupy other lives. But when he leaves those roles, he goes back to being who he is. And with Cary Grant, uh, just fascinating the way that, you know, he he kind of created the persona of Cary Grant. One of his famous quotes was that everybody wants to be Cary Grant. So do I. And yeah, it's a brilliant quote. I yeah. have spent, and then he goes on, I have spent the greater part of my life fluctuating between Archie Leach and Cary Grant, unsure of either, suspecting each. I pretend to be somebody I wanted to be until finally I became that person, or he became me. It's, it's such a, a, a cinematic observation about oneself, isn't it? Yeah, and there was so much that I found as I read about him and just did the research, which was such an enjoyable part of, of doing this book. One thing I thought was really fascinating was that uh, he was left-handed, but he played right-handers in every movie he did except one. Brilliant. And Brilliant. that's, you know, to me, there's someone who, now you could make the case that the directors wanted him to play right-handed, but it's something where everything about him to some degree was a little bit of a, a facade. And I don't say that in a, in a negative way, but it was what he was doing. He was becoming someone else. So even the idea of switching into uh, being a, um, a right-hander, uh, you know, fooling the world. The only, I think the only film he was, he allowed or did choose to be a lefty was an indiscreet. And I don't know why, I don't know what the story is on why in that film he's a lefty, but you know, every part of him was that way in which yeah, we could make jokes about lefties and righties, especially we did a show uh, uh, last week on uh, High Noon on the hysteria around politics in uh, in Hollywood hmm. uh, in the 1950s, which I assume Cary Grant in his Cary Grantish manner slid over. No one ever suspected him of being a Russian spy, did they? No, uh, you know, to some degree, I think during the Second World War, there was some suspicion about him. One of the parts of the book that deals with that is his marriage to uh, Barbara Hutton, who was one of the richest women in the world at that point. And uh, part of the, the kind of complication of it was that her previous husband uh, was Danish. And so she had renounced her citizenship and become Danish in order to avoid paying taxes. And when Cary Grant was engaged her, he had to meet with her lawyers. He was still a subject of the crown. And so they basically had to browbeat him into becoming an American citizen uh, in order to, to give, give them the, you know, the, the kind of advantages financially. And so what became interesting was how hard that was. And in fact, during that, um, run up to the marriage to Barbara Hutton. That was when he actually officially um, legally changed his name to Cary Grant. And so it was something where he became a little more, I'm not going to say under suspicion, but he, he was a little bit more visible because of it. Um, and, and also one of the things that I talk about in the book is that he was just too young to be in the first world war and he was just too old to be in the second world war but that really caused him some some angst because i think people looked at him as possibly dodging his service so there was a little bit of that and there were some stories that went around there you know the biographies of him are fascinating because there's so many disputed facts um he's someone whose history as a middle to lower middle class um 
kids. As one would expect, it makes yeah. it, it only adds to the myth. Actually, thinking about what you just said, if I was going to make, if I was making a film in the in the forties or fifties, well, it would have to be the fifties about uh, Kim Philby, uh, mm -hmm. the one of the Cambridge, one of the the most charming, womanizing of uh, uh, Cambridge spies. Uh, uh, Kerry Grant would be the perfect person to play Kim Philby. I guess because of his charm, because of his looks, because of his general insouciance, he would make a very good spy, which of course he played in several of his films. Absolutely. And, and one of these accounts of his life at least speculated on the idea that he was essentially spying in Hollywood on who was loyal, who was disloyal. Well, he was spying so on himself and he was spying on yeah. all of us. I, I mean, it's no surprise, um, uh, Ted, that he was voted with Humphrey Bogart, I think Hollywood's greatest actor. I mean, whether I'm not sure if great is a particularly useful word, but most Hollywood actor, I guess. Right. And that's your point. And that's why to write a book about um, uh, Grant, it has to be a novel. It can't be nonfiction, can it? Right. Just as an aside, it's interesting, too, when when you look at Humphrey Bogart's background, he was a wealthy prep school kid who, you know, came to Hollywood and played, you know, gangsters and criminals and everything else. And so it's funny how what one is doesn't necessarily lead to what you play, um, you know, going along. Yeah, there, it's interesting that we live in an age, a sort of, it seems to me, a highly puritanical age where we don't like liars anymore. Everyone, mm -hmm. if you lie, you're bad. But I mean, Hollywood is built on myth, on lying. And, and the sure, great figures of Hollywood, from Bogart to, uh, to, um, to, to Hitchcock, to, you know, the women actresses, we'll talk about Catherine Hepburn, Grace Kelly, Cary Grant, they're all liars. I mean, that's what the business is. That what's, that's what the craft is. Absolutely. And uh, going back to what you were asking about, you know, I think of something like um, The Crown, which just came out the new season. And there's been all of this dispute um, with the show because the show is a fictionalized version of the truth. But the the show has been asked to put that on a card at the front of the show that this is fictionalized and they have not yet done that. But it's the idea of looking at lives that you can't ever really know. And, and even a biographer can't really ever know what was going on in sort of the, the quiet moments of Cary Grant's life, no matter who you talk to or how much research you pull up. So part of the, I guess, hopefully enjoyment for me and enjoyment for someone who reads it is speculating a little bit based on what you know or what you've learned about what those those sort of um, quiet moments were like, or what happened when no one was documenting it. And There's a I, brilliant title, I have to say, Ted. Uh, did that title come naturally? Did you have to think it through? Did it just pop up towards the end of the book? Yeah, I felt all the way along that that, that was going to be the title because, uh, and to some degree, you know, it's funny in the book, I can't remember at this point how many times the, the name Cary Grant is in the book, but it's only like three or four times. You know, originally when I started writing it, I wasn't even sure I was going to use the name. Yeah, Cary. But it shouldn't be. That's right. I mean, we don't we don't a book about Cary Grant to misquote Cary Grant is not about Cary Grant. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, on some level, he um, he created or embroidered his own story. There's no doubt about that. Do you think he uh, was um, 
Do you think he, and I mean, you must have thought about this a great deal. I mean, there are two ways of, I guess, thinking about his real, quote unquote, real life. On the one hand, he was a fascinating character, much more complex, much more layered than he appears because he, he plays always someone who has no layers. And on the other hand, he was who he seemed on screen, just a good looking guy who enjoyed women and enjoyed the good life. Yeah, I think probably toward the end of his life, the imaginary Cary Grant and the real Cary Grant merged pretty neatly. You know, I think he 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 kind of lived his way into that life. He was at the end of his life an extremely wealthy person of, you know, high class person. Something missing in our current era, unfortunately, you know, is just that that sort of uh, polish that. Yeah, was he so looks valued. very polished with you know, yeah. when we when he gets older. Although there are some slightly older characters in Hollywood who have that look now of an elder Cary Grant, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I think early on though, you know, he was in his mind, he was Archie Leach. And even the way the whole Cary Grant came, thing came up is he was in a play in New York in the late twenties, I guess, before he went to Hollywood and he played a character named Cary Lockwood. And he was in the play with Fay Ray, best known, of course, for King Kong. And they were great friends. And I guess when they began to try to give him a new name, the studios wanted a new name. Uh, Fay Ray suggested Carrie Lockwood. Why don't you use that? And someone in the studio said, no, we don't like Lockwood. Too many syllables. Make it Grant. And so he didn't even choose his own name in any real yeah. way. And so he could keep a distance from that. You know, with Jimmy Wonderful. Stewart. I mean, we all, we all, we all want to be Carrie Grant in that sense. Tell us just a little bit about Archibald Alec Leach, because not everyone's, everyone knows about Cary Grant, but who was Archibald Alec Leach? Yeah, you know, it's again, a fascinating story that has multiple versions to some degree, but uh, he grew up in Bristol, UK, and his father was a tailor's presser. He pressed suits at a, at a large factory that made uh, suits. And his mother was someone who was obviously having serious mental health issues. Uh, he had an older brother, but the brother, John, had died before Carrie was born. Now, in some of the accounts, he died as an infant, but in other accounts, he may have lived till he was four years old. But there was no doubt that his mother was affected by the grief of the loss of John. Now, again, just one of the versions of the story is that he was actually adopted. That's not provable, but it's something that at least some biographers have speculated about. But he came into the world with a tall order. And I think the line I use in the book is that he's an only child, but he still feels like he's second best. And so as a young child, he had, uh, you know, a fairly impoverished uh, uh, upbringing. His father was a, a drinker and, and, you know, was throughout his whole life. And at age nine, Archie came home from school and his father sat him down and told him that his mother had left and that she had gone to the seashore. And so he accepted that. But to some degree, the idea that his mother had abandoned him, you know, really ate away at him. Now, the story I'm giving away a little, but this is fairly. Yeah, wild. don't give away the whole story okay. from the book. Uh, OK, we but want everyone in, to read the book. It's of a, course, it's a really yeah. good book. And uh, yeah. Wonderful subject. Perfect book. Right. Well, he ended up just presuming that his mother had actually died. And then there were some surprises along the way that came later. And so when he came of age, 
what he said later on, and that goes toward his LSD treatments, is that he went through marriages so quickly because he was trying to find what was missing in his childhood with his mother. He was looking yeah. for this love he didn't have, and it made it a very married five thing. times, uh, exactly. elopements, whatever. That right. Is. But because of his father's work and his father's drinking, you know, he was pretty much left alone as a kid. And so when he was 13 years old, all of the older boys and young men were off to war. And suddenly all these kids, these young boys were being pulled up and given jobs that they would have never gotten otherwise. So Archie got a job running a spotlight at the Empire Theater in, in Bristol. And uh, through that, he met Bob Pender, who was an, he had the Pender troupe, an acrobatic troupe that did vaudeville. And so he faked a letter from his father. He, he lied to Pender and said he was 16 and ran off with the Pender troupe, not expecting his father would even notice he was gone. But his father as, did not. As an acrobat, of course. As an acrobat, stilt walking. It was a, 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 a double, double piece of, uh, there's no such word as acrobacy, but there should be. Or double <laughs> double uh, acrobatic maneuver of some sort. Right. So that's where he learned all of that physical comedy. You know, he he ended up having to come home. His father hunted him down and brought him home, but agreed to let him go when he was uh, 16. So at age 16, he went with the Pender troupe to New York and they stayed in the U United States for two years, touring, doing shows all over the country. And he got to know America. And so at that point, when the Pender Troop was returning to uh, to Britain. Uh, he had just turned 18 and he and another boy decided that they weren't going back. They were going to take their chances and, and see what happened. And they did. And so I think that that kind of gutsiness, that that kind of willingness to take big risks was because, frankly, he didn't feel there was all that much to go home to. What am I going home to? So he ended up, uh, you know, being a starving wannabe actor who basically made it through the 20s or at least the early 20s by walking on his stilts in Times Square, giving away leaflets and this kind of thing. And so he used those skills to get by. And then he eventually began to get into plays in New York and a couple of silent movies that didn't really do much, but he was on his way, but it was through the risk of not- And he perfected the, the mid-Atlantic the mid uh, accent, yes. the persona adopted by so many since, including Alistair Cook, um, Christopher Hitchens, others, probably myself. I mean, he really was the guy who, who, who created the Mid-Atlantic, wasn't he? Right. And, you know, a little bit of the background on that was that on the voyage to New York in 1920, uh, he was able to sneak up onto first class. And it turned out that the two uh, most classic, classic Harry Grant, you would be disappointed if he didn't do otherwise. Exactly. Uh, acrobatically, he was able to get his way in. And the, he had heard that the two most famous actors of that day, uh, Douglas Fairbanks and uh, Mary Pickford, who were married, were up there in first class. And he was able to meet them. He actually played shuffleboard with, with Fairbanks and a picture was taken. So I do a scene in which, you know, I kind of make up the rest, but it, it goes toward what you figure happened. But at that point, Fairbanks became this tremendous idol to him. And I think that he began to kind of... Uh, well, certainly the suntanning was directly from Fairbanks, that, that hale and hearty look. And then the other part was trying to take on a little bit of the American accent. And so I think that that was part of that, um, 
morphing of of his language was that he was just uh, idolizing Fairbanks from meeting him. Right. Some people might interpret that in a different way. You talk about a hale and hearty look, Ted. Some of his closest friends come up in the book, Tony Curtis, uh, Blake Edwards, George Randolph Scott, um, Howard Hughes. They all have that healthy, hearty American male look. Some people might guess, speculate on on Cary Grant's sexuality. Do you do that Mm -hmm. in the book? Are there any thoughts that he may have enjoyed men as well, or men may have enjoyed him. I assume he attracted men. Right. And and I will say that I did decide that I would not be definitive about that in the book, but I certainly feel like I signaled heavily. I, I certainly think that the, the, the premise that maybe he was, well, I think certainly he was bisexual and he may have been more attracted to men younger in his life and, and later in his life, for whatever reason, maybe he was more attracted to women. But the relationship with Randolph Scott, if not certainly, you know, almost certainly was a sexual relationship. Uh, They lived together for years and they kind of sent up a little bit of the expectation. Some of the gossip columnists in Hollywood, like Hedda Hopper, would say, what, you know, what's going on with these two? And they kind of played off that. Yeah, well, it's hard to be, I mean, you'd be married five times and you live with a man. That's quite suggestive. Right. And after he... uh, split up with Barbara Hutton, he moved back in with, uh, with Randolph Scott, but if nothing else, they were incredibly tight friends, you know, they were just closest friends. And I think that Scott, regardless of whether they were in a sexual relationship was just a real mentor, brother figure, whatever you want to call it, but just probably the most important male figure in his life. And Scott was a really interesting person with a, an interesting background. He had been in the war and uh, he had come out to Hollywood and made his, you know, made his fortune, but he was a more educated person. He was more of, of a, an upper class background from um, North Carolina. And so, you know, there was a little bit of maybe um, symbiosis there in terms of the way that they connected. I recently rewatched uh bringing up baby wonderful film featuring uh, Catherine Hepburn and Cary mm-hmm. Grant uh, Grant played opposite Hepburn in that film although I don't know how many people remember Grant they'll only remember Hepburn he also played opposite Grace Kelly in To Catch a Thief and we all remember her from that film um, what about his relations with female actresses on and off screen, particularly on screen. Do you think he was, he seems to be someone comfortable giving women actresses space, which distinguishes him from some other male actors from the forties and fifties. Absolutely. And, and to some degree, I wonder, I don't, you know, I, this is pure speculation, but you know, that's how he got his break in film. I mean, one of his early films um, uh, was with Mae West and uh, you know, he got to play the guy who was the supporting figure for for the female actress and so there were a number of films early on in his career where he he became very comfortable in that and i think as it went on i think part of what to me is always the case with really good comic actors is that they give other people space because you have to have that that interplay would you call him i mean is he ultimately a comic actor is that I'd say yes. And and that to me was why North by Northwest was such a great movie. 
And that year, 1959, he was doing two movies. One of them was North by Northwest, which at that point, they were calling it in a Northwesterly direction. And he did not know what to make of it. And he got, he, he really thought it was going to bomb. He just didn't think the movie made any sense. He played his role. He did his thing. But then he was doing this other movie where Blake Edwards was directing and Tony Curtis was his co-star. It was called Operation Petticoat. And Grant was, I mean, he had, he had this reputation of being basically a miser uh, and he hated that, but given his background and his upbringing, you know, you might think, well, he, you know, he had to be conscious of money, but he was really a, a, a smart businessman. And so when he did the, uh, the arrangements for uh, Operation Petticoat, he took something like 75% of the net profits, you know, that he, that was a deal to get him. And I've read somewhere that if we did it in 2022 dollars, he would his cut from Operation Petticoat, this movie nobody even remembers for the most part, would have been around 100 million. And so his year was looking at I'm going to, you know, this movie, Operation Petticoat, which is purely a funny movie, uh, is going to be a gold mine in this North by Northwest is going to make me look bad. And it turned out that to me, at least North by Northwest is his greatest movie, but yeah, not only his greatest movie, his greatest role. I want to talk about that. <laughs> him as Roger Thornhill, but um, how did Hitchcock treat him? Of course, Hitchcock was notorious to borrow one of his words for mistreating women, bullying women on, oh, yeah. on, uh, on, on the set. Uh, yeah. We all remember Kim Novak, for two reasons, firstly, Vertigo, and secondly, for being bullied by, by Hitchcock. What was um, uh, Grant's relationship with, with Hitchcock like? Yeah, I'm not as deep into that. I don't, you know, what I gather from what I've read in the research that I did is that it was pretty businesslike. You know, he would come out, you know, to the, I guess it was out somewhere in the Bakersfield areas where they shot all those scenes out there. And he came to New York to do those, those scenes there. And, you know, he would sit in the car and go over his lines. And when it was time to go out, he'd go out and do it. And I think they kept their distance. And I think in that film in particular, because Grant was sort of bad mouthing it, uh, uh, you know. Was he consciously bad? I mean, was he telling people he thought? It was oh, good? he yeah. He he just like this makes no sense. Why? You know, why? Why Mount Rushmore? What is it? What is in this thing? This what's this? You know, of course, it's the MacGuffin is. Hitchcock would call it, but like, what's even in this, this little package that we're chasing. And so I guess Hitchcock kind of put them off and to talk to the writers. Um, but what was happening, and I guess this, and you may know more than I, because you, you know, of your admiration of Hitchcock, I, I get the sense that Hitchcock figured out a lot of these films in the middle of the shooting. And so what started out as a mess found its shape as the film was being made. And for someone like grant or really any actor they they don't want to go into that level of uncertainty but i get the sense it was a cool friendship let's put it that way they certainly understood that they were mutually beneficial mutually respectful i, I think yeah. and i hadn't really thought about this before your book uh ted but there and i don't know whether this is the genius of hitchcock or just some sort of um convenient uh some sort of uh accident convenient accident but Roger Thornhill, the fictional character who Grant plays in North by Northwest, captures everything about Grant because he's this successful advertising executive, a classic Mad Max character. 
who is mistaken for another man and, and kidnapped in broad daylight. And that begins the, the story. But then he becomes that other man. Right. So it's, it's, it's um, Cary Grant kind of being both Cary Grant and not Cary Grant in the same film. So he's sort of acting himself. Is there some truth to that? There is. And then let's go another step. This is sort of the, the you know, four-dimensional look at it, of course. The reason Roger Thornhill gets caught up in this is because of a mistake. His they wow. think he's... Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. Go on, go on, go on. Oh, yeah. So Roger Thornhill walks into the uh, Oak Bar at the moment that they're paging a guy named Kaplan. And so the, the bad guys look over and they see him walk in as he, you know, Kaplan is being paged and they think he's Kaplan. And in fact, Kaplan doesn't even exist. There is no Kaplan. Uh, he has been put together by what we presume is a CIA in order to entrap the bad guys. And so here's a guy, Archie, playing a guy named Cary Grant, playing a guy named Kaplan who doesn't actually exist, but then he's got to be Kaplan in order to help them. And also it's, it's a perfect opportunity to escape from his appalling mother. Yeah, well, that's, that's the other thing about the mother figures in some of these films. And, um, you know, you go back to uh, uh, it, uh, to Catch a Thief, where it's actually Grace Kelly's mother. But and it's the same actress, Jesse, who plays in both of those roles in North by Northwest and, and to Catch a Thief. But, yeah, talk about a neglectful mother. And they they basically force him to drink alcohol and he gets caught drunk driving and she wants nothing to do with it and gives him no support. It's it's just a weird little twist on the Yeah, whole and thing. I mean, if you really want to go all the way with mothers, we could go to Psycho. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you so, think that uh, a younger Cary Grant could have... Uh, I, I, is it Perkins, the guy who was um, in uh, in Psycho, the young man who yeah. acted as Psycho? Could, could a younger Cary Grant have played, have been in Psycho itself? He could have on the one hand. On the other hand, it might have been a step too far for him right and, and it is funny when you think about any actor really but certainly with grant you know him by roles that you can't think of anyone else have as having played and you think of other actors the same way and then you look at the various movies an actor turned down or wanted and didn't get and so for example um he had grant had the opportunity to play george bailey and it's a wonderful life and he didn't take it. And you, you can't think of anybody but Jimmy Stewart in that film. But I yeah. think maybe Perkins probably had an edge to him, kind of a nervousness to him that Grant would have had a very difficult time playing because any film that that Perkins was in, he always had that that underlying edge, you know? I mean, and I, Grant was always on the outside looking in, always smirking yeah. at himself. Right. In, was in there very... rivalry between um, Grant and Stewart? You know, uh, Hitch's two men, the brothers, you know, talking about brothers and sibling rivalry. I never heard anything like that. You know, I think that to a large degree, what you have is just a variety of the top actors who are taking this role or that role and is unavailable for this. And so the other one takes that and... Um, it all just falls into place. I don't think, I, I mean, I certainly didn't read anything about them having a particularly strong friendship, but I think they were respectful from what I gather. Did they understand? Did, did, I mean, I know he didn't take himself seriously, but in a way, his inability to take himself seriously is a form of seriousness. He, 
he, he wrote famously or said famously, I often think my life has been a failure. Uh, but whenever I drop into a theater and hear women laugh at one of my films, I think, well, if I brightened their day out before they went home and did the dishes, maybe my life wasn't wasted after all. Did he recognize his importance in the, the America of the 1940s, 50s and 60s in terms of not just brightening people's lives up, but giving them meaning, being at the heart of things? Yeah, I, I think he would have had to. I mean, he just had so much adulation and admiration he was a huge star and there was something about him there was a in the uh, film uh that uh, fran lebowitz did with martin scorsese she mentioned it was a little thing that she said where it was probably this 1970s and she was walking up the street you know whatever madison avenue or something in new york and cary grant was coming down the street and she said he was just glowing he was just glowing like a you know and so there's something about him that seemed to just be you know, larger than life to use the cliche. But I think that for people of that stature, you know, they know, they know through the money they make, the fans they have, et cetera, um, whether he took it overly seriously, given that he was a guy who from the age of 13 on was doing anything good to make people laugh, jumping on stilts and doing tumbles and, you know, telling jokes and everything else. You know, he wasn't someone who started out as a, a thespian. He, he started out as a comic. And like someone like, I always think of a comparative here, someone like Tom Hanks, who started out with these sort of silly, funny movies and found his way into these really great serious movies uh, and, and was able to still, you know, understand the, the nature of what he was doing. Even in North by Northwest, he's very funny in so many scenes in that film. Oh, he's brilliant. I mean, the, the scene with the leg in the train, I mean, that is the, the vulgarest moment in the, I mean, Hitchcock's whole goal was to write and talk and, and show sex. I mean, it could production be more pornographic. What about right. choosing 1959 as when your movie, uh, when you're, you're I, again, another Freudian era, your, your book takes place. 59, of course, is the last year before everything explodes, before the assassinations, overseas right. wars. Um, is there an element, do you think, of nostalgia for you in 59? What? Um, and, and obviously for uh, Kerry Grant himself, he represents that bygone age. He's not a figure right. who you associate with the 1960s in any way, even though he was obviously alive during the 60s. Right. He, you know, he did charade. I think that was probably in 1963, but from there, you know, his, he kind of wound up his career and, and affirmatively retired. You know, he could have done tons of other roles, but he chose not to. But actually the reason that I, I focused on 1959 was because of the LSD. Uh, so he had. Right. Uh, Talk about that. Because yeah. I don't give everything away from the book, but no, not this, everyone will um, yeah. know about well, the LSD stuff. Right. So, Basically, he had done a film called Houseboat, and some kind of dalliance had happened with his co-star, Sophia Loren. He was married Whoa. to Betsy Drake, uh, an actress who had really put aside her career, you know, for the relationship. And so the marriage was not in good shape. And Betsy Drake had begun LSD therapy 
at a place called the Hollywood, or I'm sorry, the Beverly Hills Psychiatric Institute. It was legal back then in 59, right? Yeah, it was, it was not only legal, but again, the fifties were a time of, you know, better living through science. You know, there's always a pill you can take to take care of everything or some kind of, you know, device or whatever. And so she undertook the therapy with the Dr. Mortimer Hartman. And, and she said that he should. And so his joke at the time was, well, the only reason I even decided I would do this is so I could find out from the doctor what my wife says behind my back. But pretty quickly, he saw what he believed were the benefits of it. And so he went into very you know, rigorous. I mean, he did, you know, 100 or more um, LSD um, treatments, we'll say, rather than trips because they were highly monitored and, and very controlled. And he kind of walked through his his life and and tried to put the pieces together of what what was making him so unhappy all the time, why his relationships so often failed. And so he really, even after the drug culture really came on strong and, and LSD became associated more with illicit drugs and, and, and the problems that come from that, you know, he really believed in it. But he also got himself in trouble in 1959 on an interview he was doing with a journalist named Joe Hyams, where he began to extol the LSD benefits to Hyams, who was with the New York Herald Tribune. And uh, that kind of, to some degree, blew up on him because people weren't that ready to hear that. And he ultimately sued, or he, I'm sorry, he denied he'd have ever spoken to Hyams, which was a foolish move because it was tape recorded and the photographer on set had taken a shot of them, in, you know, during the interview. And so Hyams sued him for uh, a half million dollars, which I don't know what that is in today's dollars. A lot of money back in 59. Yeah. And he had to retract the whole thing and, and do kind of a settlement yeah. with Hyams. It was really embarrassing for him. But after he did that, he, he really just decided, no, I'm not going to hide the fact that I believe I have gotten benefits from LSD. And uh, so he, you know, he didn't really ever disavow it from there. Yeah. And it, it makes him a contemporary figure, given how psychedelics are now back in fashion. Um, I think your book, not that uh, Kerry Grant ever went out of fashion, but your, your wonderful book is going to put him back in fashion the acrobats how should we if there's one image that we should remember Cary Grant it has to be from North by Northwest and that famous image for people watching is on the visiting Kansas of the running away from the airplane that airplane is himself isn't it right and and you know it's interesting with him that I mean, the image I often think of is the one on Mount Rushmore, which was right. just, it had nothing to do with the story. Hitchcock just always wanted to have a scene on Mount Rushmore. But yeah, this image, the, 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 the Kansas cornfield image is, I don't know, it seems to be the most famous from the film. Yeah, the crop duster. Absolutely. Um, one interesting thing is that what I, I found along the way is, you know, he, he did all these movies. And I think there are only three movies in which he actually holds a firearm and so one of them is uh to catch a thief where he shoots his shotgun to distract the police so he can escape so he doesn't shoot it anymore right one was gunga din uh where he uh you know it's a war movie so he's holding a gun and then the third one was uh charade because he you eventually find out that he's a government agent but it's amazing that he did all the movies he did and and he really his his 
violence was not his thing, you know. Right. Or his it's, not a, it's not an investment for the NRA. What's great about this, of course, is that he escaped the plane. Um, right. And I think that's the story of his life. Uh, yeah, running away from himself. That's what makes Cary Grant Cary Grant, is he Absolutely. continually avoided himself, which makes him a great movie star and a great subject for this wonderful new novel, The Acrobat, by my guest, Edward J. Delaney. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Ted, I don't know if I don't know whether, I, I mean, it's absurd. You can't really make your, your book about a movie into a movie, but maybe there's some interesting innovations one could make. Uh, certainly, it's a wonderful book. Congratulations. Um, what else are you reading these days or watching? What, what would you advise people to, to do to take their minds off things or to take, put their minds onto things? Well, yeah, that's, you know, I've been reading... A lot of, I mean, one of the reasons I, I even took on this book and decided to write it was because I've gotten more interested in reading biographical fiction, historical fiction, and whatnot. Mm. So, a couple of books I've just read that I think are worth looking at. One is called Booth. It's by Karen Joy Fowler, who's a wonderful writer. And uh, of course, you think of with the name, you think it is John Lincoln. Booth. Yeah, but it isn't. But, it, but it's really about his siblings. It's really about the way that having an assassin in your family changes the, the the trajectory of your life. Of course, the Booths were famous actors and were known for that. And then post-assassination, you know, it really turned them in different directions. And uh, another one along those lines, I read one, which is really interesting. And this is where uh, um, you take an historical figure and you do what you wish because it's fiction, right? You, I mean, there was an old book probably 10, 12 years ago called Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter that's sort mm. of the ultimate of of you know just deciding you're going to fictionalize and have fun with it but the book that i read recently which i think probably came out 2018 2019 is called confessions of the fox by uh, jordy rosenberg young writer and the book is about jack shepherd famous 18th century figure in london known for all kinds of daring prison escapes and thievery and everything else but it's imagined in the book as jack being non-binary and it just puts a whole kind of different uh, look on it. And, it. and that's what I like about books like that, because, you know, to some degree, I mean, the, the Booth book has tremendous relevance now with the political violence that we're seeing. And, and I think that escaping to history can be fun. But on the other hand, reading history to get a better perspective on what's happening now is also useful. And then one that I'm reading at the moment um, uh, is called um, Still No Word From You by the incredible Peter Orner. He doesn't get his due. Uh, he's just such a wonderful writer and, and his books are always reviewed with incredible enthusiasm. But I just don't think people are reading enough of his work. So that's another one I'd certainly recommend, I think. And it's just, he's primarily a short story writer uh, in my view, but his novels kind of piece together in a way in which the stories create a kind of a larger kind of um, mosaic and just a wonderful writer.